Hi, and welcome to Fado, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. Here we are at the end of the month and nearing the climax of Fado's October releases. We've heard some truly terrifying things, and we've talked about terrors both real and imagined, but we're not finished. Not yet. In this episode, we're taking a look at the master himself, the true source of all we know of American Gothic fiction. He inspired generations of writers, artists, singers, and poets, and no small number of goths and emos. I'm talking, of course, about Edgar Allan Poe. His darkly romantic writings are filled to the brim with shadow and mystery, and tragedy and loneliness. His work, though, is a reflection of his own difficult and tumultuous life. Poe was actually famous for, and made a living with, his work in his own lifetime, unlike H.P. Lovecraft. But Poe was nonetheless fraught with his own troubles. I will tell you more about him, but I want to get to our first of three of Poe's works. The Telltale Heart is the first of Poe's stories I clearly remember hearing. It was an adaptation, actually, an animated, slightly abbreviated version, and you owe it to yourself to look that one up. It's on YouTube if you search Animated Telltale Heart from 1953. The animation fits the style really well, and its narration is by James Mason. It's frightening enough that I still associate this story with those images something like 35 years later. And now, as published in the Pioneer Literary and Critical Magazine by Edgar Allan Poe in 1843, The Telltale Heart. Very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye, with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, 
I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work, I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon the bed. Ha! <laughs> would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door— a watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. And perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, "'Who's there?' I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death-watches in the wall." Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief, 
Oh no, it was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say... There came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well I have told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now, a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. 
The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But, ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears— but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. 
I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark! Louder! 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 Villains! I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. Once more, we are dealing with an unreliable narrator. Of course he's not mad. I mean, if he was mad, he wouldn't be so sane, right? Obviously. It's a characteristic of this kind of story that the narrator slowly slips in composure. I try to convey that when I'm reading these stories, because it's one of the best parts. Trying to detect when the character flips the balance from composure to madness. The yellow wallpaper was fun in that way as well, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman managed to walk that line as well as Poe or Lovecraft. When I'm researching these stories, I intentionally stay away from too professional an analysis, because I'm trying to give my own thoughts, my own armchair perspective as much as I can, along with the interesting facts that I dig up. So this may be out there, but... I think one of the most difficult skills that an author needs to master is the ability to write an authentic loss of faculties. Being able to write a character with a convincing disability or difficulty or illness that you've never experienced can be trying, to say the least. But here's why I bring it up. Lovecraft and Gilman and Poe weren't supposing. They lived these mental difficulties. Their struggles, as sad and heartbreaking as they are, fueled some of the most incredible art in American history. I don't envy them, but I do appreciate how they took their situations and gave voice to them in a way that resonated. Now, specific to the telltale heart, one thing that always interests me is that we have no idea who the old man is to the narrator. What I find disturbing is that the narrator has no problem with the old man. He hasn't done or said anything wrong, and the narrator doesn't even take his things. 
He's just annoyed by the man's eye. And while I do get a little agitated if someone is chewing loudly in a quiet environment, I've never plotted murder as a result. Anyway, Poe did seem to like to leave things unsaid, and that's a quality that I love in a story. I like to be able to fill in gaps myself, and when I write, I try to let the reader do that as well. I looked around, and it seems that Poe never answered the question of the old man's identity, at least where anyone could hear. Another thing I wondered about is the heartbeat as a sign of the narrator's coming loss of control. Now, it's not always for insanity, but the heartbeat has been a staple of movies and TV for some time. I couldn't find the first use of that familiar sound in movies or television, but something about that rhythm causes tension. And I wonder, though I couldn't find any commentary, whether this story plays into that phenomenon. Whether Poe's use of the old man's heartbeat didn't spark that relationship in the American consciousness. If you think about it, though, the heartbeat has probably always tied into reminding us of our mortality. And in this case, the man the narrator thinks is dead is still very much alive in his conscience. And if I'm being poetic... That sound can serve to highlight our fleeting time on Earth, or it can remind us that even though we are mortal, we're alive right now, and we shouldn't waste it. Now, as I've said, we've got a couple more of Edgar Allan Poe's works to come, right on up to Halloween night, so I hope you'll drop back in and check it out. So if you're having fun listening to Fido, you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. Don't forget to share and leave a review if you like what you're hearing. If you leave me comments or questions, I might even be able to read them on the air. You can also keep up and follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram. I'm at Fido Podcast. And if you want to support me more directly, you can become a patron. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. There will be behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and also merch. I have stickers, and if you become a patron, I can guarantee you one in your membership letter. That's right, I'll send you a personally handwritten note in the mail with a sticker. Also, if you join, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of episode 26. Watch for episode 27 coming out tomorrow on October 30th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.